God's voice tends to reassure you. Satan's voice frightens you. God's voice enlightens you. Satan's voice confuses you. God's voice encourages you. Satan's voice discourages you. God's voice comforts you. Satan's voice worries you. And God's voice calms you. And Satan's voice obsesses you. You're listening to the Rule of Life podcast by Practicing the Way. In each season, we explore an ancient practice from the way of Jesus and its relevance for the modern era. This is season four, Solitude. Hey everybody, welcome back. I am so happy to introduce you to our conversation partner for this episode, Ken Shigematsu. He is the senior pastor of 10th Church in Vancouver, BC, one of the largest and most diverse city center churches in Canada. I love Vancouver, BC. Ken's been there for well over two decades. He's widely respected, not just in the city, but across the nation and far beyond. He's a newer friend to mine, over the last year or two, um, I came to friendship to him first just through reading his books. He's written several beautiful books, God in My Everything, which is all about rule of life. And then most recently, Now I Become Myself, which is one of the best things I've ever read on a spirituality of self-awareness and how that ties into our life with God. Before he kind of started into pastoral ministry, worked for the Sony Corporation in Tokyo. So he just brings this fascinating cross-cultural kind of uh, voice and, and vantage point to the conversation around spiritual formation. And I specifically wanted to ask him questions about this kind of underbelly side to the practice of solitude. And all that comes up as we go into a place of encounter. Here's my conversation with Kent. The Solitude Practice is a four-week experience designed to be run in your church, small group, or community. It combines teaching, conversation, and spiritual exercises to introduce you to this ancient discipline for life with God. If you come on the Solitude Practice, you will not just learn about solitude, you will learn how to practice solitude. The end goal is to integrate solitude more richly into your rule of life so that you can arrange your life around God. The solitude practice is completely free, thanks to the generosity of our friends in the circle. Available now at practicingtheway.org. Hi, Ken. Hi, John Mark. Great to see you. Great to see you too, thanks. You are always such a joy to be with. You're one of those very few people who when I'm with you, I just feel my nervous system start to idle down from 11 where it is most days to you know five or six you're such a a gift just to breathe the air the same air as you thank you for your time i know time is precious and we're very grateful yeah i know it's a joy to be with you thank you john john mark 
Has the um, weather turned yet in Vancouver? I know this time of year, you're right on the line. Yeah, we are right on the line. It's been a fairly hot summer, but uh, in the mornings, it's a little cooler. In the evenings, I find that I'm putting on my hoodie as I walk our Golden Retriever. So yeah, it feels like fall is starting to enter the air. Now, I feel like in all of your books, you write about walking and running with your Golden Retriever, but at least God of my everything is 15 years old. Is it the same golden retriever? Have there been multiple golden retrievers for multiple books? Or is this just a long life golden retriever? So we've had two golden retrievers. So we're on our second now. So um, there yeah, from is. God of my everything about a decade ago, I think it was a different golden retriever, but we've got, <laughs> we've got a, <laughs> a, a, a newer dog now. Well, there you go. Ken, you were recently with us for our annual pastors conference for Practicing the Way at Bridgetown in Portland. Thank you so much for coming. And, you know, at that annual conference in the evening session, we bring in what you don't know this, but uh, not public facing, private facing for our team. We just called the sage, the resident sage for what we call the sage talk, which is just something on the life of the soul and in particular, as we interact with pastors, you know, you know the stat, only about 30% of pastors end well. And uh, we're in just such a staggering crisis across the Western church of pastoral scandal after scandal after scandal. So whenever I meet someone like you, and you're not that old, but you're ahead of me, and you just have this, I have a bunch of friends in the city of Vancouver, and you just have this legendary, you are beloved in the city and so well respected by all who know you. And um, that just speaks so highly to you. So we wanted you to come and kind of give our sage talk, which is basically insider lingo for how do you stay a pastor for a long time and not mess up your <laughs> life and actually become more like Jesus, not less like Jesus over time, because there is this weird conspiracy of pastoral life where it's often more deformative than formative. So. You are, are such, not perfect, but you are, are such a gift to not only your own church, but to so many of us. And so, you know, you're, you're just a voice, um, one of not a lot, but really on the kind of, I don't like the phrase inner life because it's, again, it's about your whole life, but about the kind of inner dynamics of the soul. And so I really wanted to pick your brain on solitude because, you know, when you go into solitude, you, you you go into solitude, you know, and and when we're not in solitude, when we're with other people or we're on our device or we're busy at work or, you know, plowing through our email, it's easy to kind of ignore ourself. But who we are comes into solitude with us and we have to face all sorts of things, not just God. So I guess my opening question for you you know, solitude has got to be one of the least popular after fasting. It's got to be about one of the least popular of all the disciplines for a modern person. And I think part of that's because it's really hard, and especially at first. Why do you think people find it so scary or off-putting or so resistant to it? And why do you think people find solitude to be so difficult? Yeah, John Mark, you're familiar with the, the study that was sponsored by researchers at the University of Virginia and Harvard uh, where they had research participants experience silence and solitude, uh, but they also had oh, an yeah. opportunity to 
give themselves a painful electric shock and exit and a surprising yes. number. And get out of solitude. Yeah, get out of yes. solitude. And many And it wasn't what was it? It was like fifteen minutes or something. It was it wasn't a long time they had to be in solitude. Yeah, I think it was six yes. to fifteen minutes or something. I think there was a, there was there was a range there. And we might wonder why would that be? And most people in that study chose to shock themselves right, exactly. rather than yeah. sit for 15 minutes yeah. in solitude. So, so why would that be? You would think that if a person has an opportunity to be in silence, that could be a, a mini vacation, but that's not typically true for most people. And so research right. has shown that if you have someone lie down, say in an fMRI machine as has been done, and tell them, John Mark, do nothing, just relax, a typical person doesn't do nothing. They don't just relax, but their brain starts churning and defaulting mm. to ruminating on some past regret or some anxiety yes. in the future. And they tend to be preoccupied with self-absorbed thoughts, and it's typically unpleasant. And so the experience of silence is not restful for many people. The irony is that if you enter into silence and practice solitude— and meditation, that over time, the silence becomes a place of rest and your mind doesn't default to the rumination, to the regrets, to the anxiety. It becomes a, a spacious place of peace and connection with God. How, how, do you, how do you make that shift? I mean, I think what you're naming is, yes, anybody that's gone into silence for a day, a week, or 10 minutes, I mean, yeah, exactly what you just said. Your brain starts to go all over the map. How, how do you transition from my brain is just, you know, uh, Orberg used that line from Cheek Sent Me High a few weeks ago, the mind unaided tends toward chaos. How do you go from chaos to the peace of Christ? Like any direction there? Yeah, well, a couple of things. First of all, if you stay with the practice of silence and solitude or silent meditation over time, the, the mind tends to, to quiet. And so, if someone is going into this experience for the first time, it might feel like their their mind is like a waterfall, just you know, gushing thoughts. And then with more time, maybe like a river, and then eventually more like a, a, a still lake. I tend to mm. be a very easily distracted person by nature. So at, at any given time, I can feel like there are 136 monkeys jumping around in my head. Uh, John Mark, I think that you're a more natural contemplative than I am. I tend to be... <laughs> no, no. I, I'm a, distractible as they come, 100%. Well, not as they come, not as they come. But I, no, I, I, I'm glad that I have you fooled. <laughs> well, uh, uh, but because of my uh, tendency to be distracted, I will begin the morning or uh, at some point in the morning, just sitting and breathing deeply in through mm -hmm. my nose and exhaling slowly. I'll breathe in deeply and exhale slowly. And even just the act of breathing in through our nose releases nitric oxide, which tends to have a, a calming and a stabilizing effect. Mm -hmm. uh, but still, my mind will be racing and I'll start to wonder how much time has gone by anyway. And so I'll reach for my phone, not to check messages, but to open up a free app called Centering Prayer. I'm not sure if you're familiar with this particular app, but mm. um, I no, set a no. timer to maybe 20 or, or 30 minutes, hit begin, so I'm not thinking about the time.
A chime sounds as though I were in a monastery being summoned to pray by a bell. And I continue to breathe in mm. deeply, exhale slowly, breathe in deeply, exhale slowly. And then I start to think of my to-do list, all the things I ought to be doing. <laughs> yeah. It's two or three really nice breaths in right, my exactly. experience. And then, and then the, 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 mind. the mind sort of takes off. Unaided tends toward chaos. Yeah. And, and so I, I give my mind a little something to do. I'll take a brief passage of scripture, like be still and know that I am God. And every time my mind gets distracted by some chaos, uh, something that I feel like I need to be doing, I'll, I'll simply repeat that. Be still and know that I am God, or even a singular word, mm. I'll, I'll repeat like love to remind me of God's posture toward me. And when the 20 or 30 minutes are done, um, even though I may have been quite distracted, I tend to feel a little bit more relaxed, a little bit more centered, a little bit more aware of Jesus throughout the rest of the day. Mm. Yeah. Um, have you read Martin Laird's little trilogy on contemplative prayer, Into the Silent Land? I've read Into the Silent Land, yes. Yeah, I'm thinking of what he writes about, for those that are um, not familiar with contemplative prayer, the idea of just breathing and saying a word mm. or a phrase over and over for 20 minutes might sound utterly bizarre. Um, but he has this great little insight where, you know, the mind, you know, it can't, and I think his language is, it can't not think. Mm -hmm. So at some point, God's not an idea, or a feeling, God is a person, and you want to kind of move beyond thoughts and feelings even to just communion with mm -hmm. God, what the ancients called union. But you have this mind that doesn't mm -hmm. shut off. There's no off switch for the mind, even when you sleep, right. you know, we're dreaming. And so his thing is, so give the mind something to do. Mm -hmm. And so whether that's breathing or prayer word or the Jesus prayer, it's to kind of give the mind something mm -hmm. to do so that your spirit in the language of the New Testament is more open to communion with God. Is, is that, how would you interact with that? Agree, disagree? Is that something like your experience or, or is it just, you know? Yeah, I, I would totally agree with that. And I think of the instruction of the abbots to monks in ancient and, and modern times to uh, do something simple while meditating. It might be weaving a basket or it might be uh, taking a walk yes. or working with wood. Uh, some people find it relaxing to do something simple like uh, go for a walk or even drive, maybe not uh, in L.A. during rush hour or, or Vancouver during rush <laughs> yeah. hour. Said no <laughs> contemplative in right. L.A. ever. <laughs> but no, you're right. Yeah, more kinesthetic personalities. Yeah, yeah doing something with your yeah. body. If you're in a, in, a, in a countryside or if you're driving down a street without much traffic and you're having to focus a little bit on the road, that can also still the mind. So giving the mind something simple to to do can help distill it and open our spirit to the Spirit of God. Hi there. My name is Ryan Wolf, and I'm a youth pastor from Columbus, Ohio. When I wanted to integrate solitude into my rule of life, it wasn't necessarily difficult to carve out a time period in the morning to do it, as it was to fight the resistance of the anxiety and nervousness that defined the first few minutes of my solitude practice. As I would pray and invite God to enter into the space with me, my heart would beat out of my chest. As I would intentionally posture myself still, my flesh did everything it could to force me to move. And as I attempted to quiet my mind, 
The devil only tried to fill it with lies. The remarkable thing that happened, however, as often is the case with our God, is that as I was fighting resistance, he would turn the experience into delight. As I felt the anxiety and inner tension leave my body through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, solitude quickly became a practice where I could feel my soul coming back to life. My soul was awakening, and I have never felt more alive. And because I continue to show up to practice solitude, God is gradually decreasing the felt experience of resistance, and I feel more and more delight. And although I know that I may still feel resistance, I take comfort in the fact that the Lord is near and that he still never fails to meet me in the quiet place, in the Aramos, morning after morning. What's the difference, Ken, between mindfulness, whether of the kind of Buddhist variety or the more Western secularized variety, and contemplative prayer? Because, I mean, a lot of what you're talking about breathing, focusing on a word, being still. Um, is this just Christianized mindfulness or or is there something else below the surface? Yeah, there is there is some overlap. So mindfulness, as I understand it, is to simply be uh, mindful of what's happening in front of you. So I, I noticed that you just sort of um, rubbed your face um, and, and the side of your nose um, and you're smiling. Uh, I... And mindful of this um, photograph in my office with with some of my colleagues on the occasion of a certain work anniversary. Mindful that the sun is coming through the window here in Vancouver. It's often cloudy and 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 rainy here. Uh, so mindfulness is being aware. In terms of contemplative prayer and how it's different, contemplative prayer is a practice where we are intentionally seeking the face of the living God. And as we breathe in, we're not just attending to our breath, but we are attending to the very Spirit of God. As, as you know, in Hebrew and Greek, the, the words for breath and spirit are one and the same. And so when we hmm. breathe in, we're yes. not just taking in oxygen, but we are, in fact, inhaling the very breath, the very Spirit of God. Hmm. So there is a difference. Yeah, you know... Um... I read another one of your fellow Canadian writers recently, Mark Buchanan, has a book on walking with God. And he basically argues that, you know, spiritual disciplines is not great language, that we need physical disciplines, right? And what are the physical disciplines of the Christian faith? And so he has this whole case that walking with God is not just a word picture, like there's actually something to walking with God. This is a physical discipline of the Christian faith. But that got me thinking a lot about what you just said, you know, and if you're new to if you're new to this, if you're new to Jesus or the New Testament, you may not know this. The word that's translated spirit, like Ken just said, is ruach in Hebrew, pneuma in Greek. It's the same word that's translated breath um, or wind. So spirit, wind, breath, same word. So the Holy Spirit is totally legitimate. Uh Correct me if I'm wrong, Greek scholars, but I did go to seminary. It's totally legitimate to translate that the holy breath and the breath of God within you. So ever since then, and I read, um, do you know about that little book by James Nestor, uh, Breathe? Yes, yeah, uh, I am familiar with it. Oh, beautiful secular book, but by a journalist on the science of breath. And I mean, it was just absolutely, I could not put it down. And ever since like those two books, I've been thinking, man, I wonder if breathing 
is is like this physical discipline of the way of Jesus that we've lost a bit in the West. Because when you go back and you read like all, a lot of the early church fathers or a lot of the Eastern stream of the church, the breath is all over it. But in the West, we're so mind focused since the Reformation. You know, do you is that maybe like less of a hang up for you just with your your ancestry, what you carry in your body, the traditions that you carry in your body? I might just find at least in America, there's so much resistance against much of the contemplative aspect of life. Yeah, I find it perhaps easier because I can draw on to traditions of my culture of origin and, and ancestors. And so um, when they have learned to be more present by breathing deeply and uh, experiencing life more fully, I, I tend to um, be ready to adopt anything that can open me wider to to the the, the spirit of Christ. So um, yeah, I don't. I, I certainly don't have a, a problem with it. I find that that as I learn from other cultures, uh, that my life is enriched and I can go even deeper with my relationship with God. Hmm. It seems like there's a bit of a process from hey. If somebody were to sit down and attempt contemplative prayer, you know, after this podcast to, you know, maybe the level of peace or delight that you find morning by morning, how, how long do you, I know there's not an answer to this, but um, how long do you think somebody has to stay with this form of prayer before they begin to really get into it and experience the depth of it. Yeah, it might be helpful to even cite a, a psychological study. So according to Dr. Kelly McGonigal, who teaches psychology at Stanford, if a person meditates for as little as 15 to 20 minutes over two to three months, not only does their capacity for attention increase and grow, but the neural networks in their brain associated with feeling anxiety and depression on a brain scan would have actually um, shown be shown to have shrunk. And so there are mm. certain physical changes in the brain that can happen after two or three months of, of, of meditation. And, and uh, that will um, impact the way we experience not only life, but our larger uh, uh, everyday life, but our, also our life with God. Mm. And that's 15 or 20 minutes daily. 15 or 20 minutes daily. Mm -hmm. Yep, but at that rate, you're saying the data is two to three months before the brain kind of wiring starts to to reform yeah. mm -hmm. into some new 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 plasticity. Yeah, I mean, and again, and we're not trying to just biohack prayer here. We're just saying you have a body. Prayer is an embodied experience. God is an embodied. All everything is an embodied experience. You know, that's interesting. You know, I wonder um, what I wanted to kind of pick your brain on here. I wonder if part of the reason that silence is so hard, contemplative prayer, which is in the context of silence, is so hard, especially at first, is because I think a lot of us go into silence with a, like a therapeutic mindset. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we've used Nouwen's line, silence or solitude is not a private therapeutic place. It is the place of encounter, you know, he calls it the furnace of our transformation. And I was really rocked um, reading some of the desert fathers and mothers because they literally went into the desert, not like 
metaphorically. They didn't like take a Friday morning right. and take the day off work and go to a park. They like abandoned everything and walked out into, you know, north of Sinai Peninsula. And, um, but their paradigm, their motivation for why to go into solitude was not like a wellness motivation, like, hey, we're so stressed out and we just need our nervous system, parasympathetic, sympathetic nervous system to rebalance. It was Matthew chapter four and Luke chapter four. It was Jesus, you know, went into the desert to fight Satan and we're followers of Jesus. So we go out into the desert to fight Satan. And um, I was in, I know you love Ireland. I know Ireland's played a key role in your spiritual journey. My son and I were there many years ago and had the chance to go visit Skellig Michael. Are you familiar with that? Mm -hmm. Yep. Uh, and then the western which, part. Yes. Yeah, yeah, the island, yeah. Mm. Yeah, so we drove all the way across the island and it was it was amazing. It was like, you know, pouring rain, beautiful, but classic Ireland. And we woke, we got, got there at night some cheap Airbnb, you know, on on a on the side of the road, couldn't even see. Woke up the next morning and it was like gorgeous, seventy something degrees. We wow. realized we were right on a cliff overlooking the ocean, and Skellig Michael was out the front door, and it was like out of a movie. This little cottage with the white stone. Who knows? Beautiful. So we had the chance to go visit Skellig Michael, which if you've seen the some of the recent Star Wars movies, it's where they filmed uh, the Lost Jedi Temple. Luke Skywalker is hiding. That's actually an ancient Augustinian monastery built on this island that at the time was uh, the westernmost point of Europe. And, and they had no idea what was beyond it other than just the waters of chaos. So I asked the guide, like, what's behind the name? Skellig, you know, is Gaelic means rock. It's a kind of a rock outcropping. And then Michael was named after Michael in the book of Revelation because he was the one that went to fight Satan. And these mm -hmm. monks like went out to this island, founded a monastery to fight Satan and to hold back the waters of chaos for the known world at the time. And I just thought that is a very different mindset around solitude than my mindset of like, hey, Man, hurry and busyness and exhaustion. I need some time to just decompress and hear God's voice. I don't think of silence as like war, but it's right there in Matthew chapter four. It's in the desert fathers and mothers. It's in much of the monastic tradition. So, I would just love any thoughts you have on that, or what's your? Do you ever experience, as Jesus experienced the voice of the evil one and the voice of temptation? Do you ever experience that in solitude? Not just God's voice, but other voices. Yeah. Sometimes when I'm in silence, it, it, it does feel like I'm uh, in the forest or by the ocean in a, in a uplifting way uh, where I, I feel peace and, and contentment. But other times when I'm, I'm in silence, uh, anxiety will rise up within me or um, a feeling of anger or resentment, uh, maybe a feeling of envy and I feel like I'm confronting the the um, the darkness within me, and mm, yes. I um, I lift those up to to God in in prayer and trust that the the wind of God's spirit will carry that away, and it, they'll come back, and I'll lift them up and uh, trust that they'll be they'll be carried away. Um, sometimes when I'm in, in silence, I'm not sure if it's my own voice, my own inner chatter, or the voice of the darkness, the voice of the devil, or some demonic force, but uh, there will be an impression um, 
that I'm, I'm not worthy or that I'm under some kind of condemnation. And um, that gives me an opportunity to affirm from Scripture, as uh, was true of Jesus, that I am the, the beloved Son of God. Um, mm-hmm. Sometimes I'll, I'll just affirm, Ken, uh, as though God were speaking to me, you are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And so, um, yeah, I, I feel that there are times when I have confronted either my own darkness or the darkness of the enemy. And the, the time in silence can be a battleground to mm. wage war against spiritual forces of evil. Yes. How, I mean, how do you distinguish as those various, and they're just thoughts that come through our conscious awareness, you know, or feelings or perceptions. How do you distinguish God's voice from just your own brain synapses firing based on your experience from potentially the voice of a demonic spirit or the evil one if Jesus and the Desert Fathers and Mothers and many other wise ones are right in a part of the experience of solitude? How do you sift through that cacophony of voices? Yeah, when I was a a new follower of Jesus, I felt quite a bit of guilt over some things that I had done in my uh, younger teen years. I had some bad habits, including shoplifting, um, joyriding, so borrowing cars that were being worked on at the local repair shop before I had a license, um, some small-time drug dealing. And <laughs> This is so hard for me to imagine. <laughs> yes. I know the 50-something can. I can't, um, I can't <laughs> imagine any of that. Uh, and... Uh, you know, I had prayed for forgiveness. Uh, in the case of shoplifting, I uh, went back to stores and made uh, restitution, not with inflation-adjusted dollars. I didn't understand <laughs> that concept, but I, I made restitution as best as I could calculate. But I still felt this sense of this guilt um, gnawing at me. And so I went to see my pastor, and I, I explained how I was feeling the sense of guilt. Was that from God, or was that from the darkness And uh, my pastor said, here's how to distinguish between the voice of God and and, and Satan's voice. God's voice will convict you of sin and draw you closer to him, where Satan's voice will condemn you and, and drive you further from God. So God's voice convicts us and draws us to himself. Satan's voice condemns us and drives us away. Uh, my uh, wife is a, a spiritual director, and in some of her training, actually, out of um, the state of Oregon, uh, she passed on some thoughts to me that were helpful. God's voice tends to still you, where Satan's voice tends to rush you, or oh, you might prefer the word, hurry you. Yes. Uh, God's voice tends to reassure you. Satan's voice frightens you. God's voice enlightens you. Satan's voice confuses you. Hmm. God's voice encourages you. Satan's voice discourages you. God's voice comforts you. Satan's voice worries you. And God's voice calms you. And Satan's voice obsesses you. Wow. And so the the voice of God um, will tend to be accompanied with a sense of peace and, and life and joy and contentment, where a Satan's voice will tend to be accompanied in the end by anxiety, discouragement, 
obsession, rushing. Uh, you mentioned the Desert Father. Saint Anthony uh, once said, um, the great Desert Father, um, you only know if it's been an angel or a devil who's visited you by how you feel afterwards. Wow. I'm thinking of Evagrius here a little bit later, but still in the Desert Father tradition. His, um, his work has deeply imprinted on my worldview. He has that book, uh, Talking Back, a monastic handbook for combating demons, uh, a which is all, <laughs> it's a great mm. title, which is, you know, based on Matthew 4, based on the Jesus in the wilderness, Jesus in solitude, if you prefer story, where, and the, the title Talking Back is basically, hey, you go in, his interpretation of that story was, you know, you go into the desert, the enemy speaks lies to you. And uh, you discern those lies in your mind, and then you talk back. You follow the Jesus model, where you speak truth, uh, in his case, scripture, back to these demonic lies. And you, and you get free of the lies that are living within your body and your life so that you can go do what God made you to do. So, um, beautiful read of the Matthew 4 story. But he has that great line, like, talking about, same thing, talking about how do you know if a thought is of Jesus or of the evil one? And he says, if it's from the spirit of Jesus, then, quote, it will fill you with tranquility. Mm, beautiful. And I just thought, man, that's really interesting. Like, that was his litmus test. Does this thought fill me with tranquility? Um, if so, it is likely from God. And if not... It's likely from another more nefarious source, you know? Ken, why do you think there's the kind of, I'll just use the word spirituality, and all I mean by that is a, a way of interacting with God, that you are, you know, speaking of, breathing for 20 or 30 minutes in the morning and repeating the name of Jesus and offering yourself to him, being in the quiet. I know Sabbath is a core part, you know, in your book, you call it a foundation, you know, in your rule of life. Um, why do you think that? And again, I don't know Canada as well as America. and I certainly don't know the church in Japan, but I, I know America and I know that is a rare, that's not how most people are interacting with God. It's much more kind of knowledge-based, head-based, action-oriented, event-based. Um, why do you think there's such a, so little um, of that experience for, for so many Western Christians? Yeah, I think part of it is that um, people find that when they enter into silence, that uh, thoughts, as we mentioned earlier, start to cascade through their minds. And so at first it can be a, a, a difficult experience and one where a person doesn't feel necessarily more connected with God. So I think someone has to persevere through that. Mm. I think that for some also, um, people are afraid that if they come before God in a posture of receptive silence, that they might be vulnerable to exposing themselves to some demonic voice or spirit. And there are times when we enter into that space to do battle with Satan. But as uh, Thomas Keating, the late Trappist abbot, has said, there is no safer place truly than being absorbed in, in God's presence. Yeah. I also think that we equate transformation or growth as a disciple of Jesus with head knowledge often. Yes. 
And as, as you've taught so um, wisely, uh, information doesn't always lead to yes. true transformation. You're familiar with the study done at Princeton years ago where, in a, where um, uh, students were asked to, at, at, at Princeton Seminary, to preach a homily on the Good Samaritan. And uh, they hired an actor to um, be lying on the side of the path in obvious pain. And these seminary students who knew as the they Good were Samaritan going story preach, well enough yeah. to preach it, <laughs> Right, as they're going to preach, uh, for the most part, didn't stop to help that person, especially if they were in a Why hurry. Am I so laughing? you can know a passage. Horrific, <laughs> horrific story. You can know a passage well enough to preach it, and 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 yet not have it transform yes. your your heart. And there is something about silence that immerses us deeply into the presence of God. Someone has said that silence is God's first mm-hmm. language. And if you're wanting to learn a new language, you mentioned that I'm originally from Japan. If you, John Mark, wanted to learn Japanese, the best way for you to do that would be to move to Japan for a while and, <laughs> and just be yourself silent in the language, and listen. Yes, <laughs> in the culture and, and listen and and absorb. And if a person wants to encounter God deeply and to hear God and to experience the love of God deeply, God's first language is silence. And so there's there's something about yeah. that experience that connects us in a deep, intimate, transformative way with our maker. Yeah, I'm thinking of, you know, was it St. John who said, the friend of silence comes close to God. Yeah, I mean, that is so my experience, Ken, and that's why I think I ache for so many of my fellow Christians in the modern noisy world who just don't have, they don't have a practice of, regular solitude, silence, or Sabbath. And to me, that those things often flow together. Just because that, like, the two places where I most experience God, most experience His love, His presence, His peace, are in deep silence and in deep relationships. And I think so much of the modern Christian life is spent at events and activities and you know, reading, thinking, and I'm not against that. We're recording a podcast right now. I think thinking well is crucial, but man, those moments, most of the time, eight or nine out of 10 of the time, you know, times when I just have a profound sense of God's love and presence, it's in silence or it's in a very close relationship. You know, I want that so badly for people because I think, you know, it seems like the voice of the enemy is there with us all of the time. But when we go into the desert, like it becomes clear, oh, that's the voice of the enemy. Like that, that thought I keep having, that fear. I mean, you're mentioning, it sounded to me like the one word answer for why are people not living this way with God is fear. That would be my summary of your aunt. People are just scared, scared of the quiet, scared of what may come up, scared of shame. What role does shame, I mean, you've done really interesting work recently around shame. I mean, what, what, what's the interplay between shame, silence? How does shame keep us from silence? Yeah, um, shame will cause us to feel like we're, we're not enough, uh, that um, we are in, in some way unworthy or invisible. And I've been thinking about how Thomas Merton said, we we feel invisible as human beings. And so we will wrap ourselves in bandages of achievement and activity Mm. and 
pleasure and material possessions and building a reputation so that we will be seen, so that we will be visible. But when we, we um, try to create a self from um, an identity that's based on what we do, what we have, what others think of us, we're living from what Merton called the, the false self. Mm-hmm. And it's as we expose ourselves to the presence of God in silence that we recognize that though we at some level are sinful and had fallen short of God's perfect standard, that we are nonetheless loved without condition. Yes. We are cherished, we are held. And when we recognize that we are, are, are loved without condition and held and, and cherished, that that heals our shame mm. and enables us to, to live with a, a greater lightness of being and, and show up. As, uh, as our real and, and, and true, made in the image of God's selves in the world. Wow, that's beautiful. Practicing the Way is a crowdfunded nonprofit made possible by The Circle, a group of people from all over the world who believe deeply in the work of spiritual formation and discipleship and give monthly to see formation integrated into the church at large. I'm Delaney from Alberta, Canada, and I'm a part of this community. I support Practicing the Way because the resources they've created have encouraged me to fall more in love with Jesus, and I believe that the work they're doing will lead to life transformation for people no matter where they are on their discipleship journey. To join myself and others in the circle, or to share a one-time gift, visit practicingtheway.org slash give. As we near the end of our conversation, I mean, at some point, we all have to come out of solitude, right? So Jesus goes into the wilderness, has his encounter with demonic beings, and then comes back, you know, in Luke's version of the story, filled with the Holy Spirit, with the breath, with the Holy Breath. Um, what's that interplay between leaving the world and going into solitude and leaving solitude and coming back in into the world, you know? Um, how do those things go together? Yeah, uh, so I think some people feel that to spend time in, in silence and in solitude is just a, a waste of time. So I think that's part of the reason some people yes. don't engage in that. They just don't have time Did, to this. Didn't Nowen call it wasting time on God? Tongue in cheek. That was what his he called solitude. It's wasting yeah, I think Marva time Don, on God. Uh, describe worship oh, was as, it, a, as a royal uh, waste of time. Uh, and so maybe she's drawing from uh, from Henri Nouwen. Um, so some people feel that they simply don't have have time for it. Uh, but silence and solitude, when we get away and are with God, we actually end up being filled in a way that empowers us to go back into the world and, and contribute more. So my um, friend Hillary McBride is a Christian and a psychologist, and she said at our church, if you'll spend 15 to 20 minutes in silent meditation over four to six weeks, and then a disabled person walks into the room, you'll be like 100 times more likely to respond to that person. Wow, interesting. Yeah, you meditate on a God who is loving, compassionate, and kind. Uh, You will become loving, compassionate, and kind. Yes, and I find, uh, John Mark, if, um, you know, I've got a very full day ahead of me, some big challenge, a crucial conversation I need to engage in, 
I need to raise the temperature in the room, so to speak, in a gathering, uh, that 30 minutes of silence or 20 aren't quite enough, that I need an hour or maybe more. Yes. <laughs> because... That it was. That, what's the Francis de Sales line? And people will hate this, but he said something to the effect of, "I need thirty minutes a day of quiet prayer, except when I'm really busy. Then I need a full hour." <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> so something, something exactly like that, because I know that if I spend time with God in that silence, uh, that I will be more relaxed, yeah, more calm, more creative, more courageous, more fierce if I need to be. So it's something that that will prepare me to, 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 to face the day. It's well, something that will um, equip me with um, a fuller measure of the spirit to face down all that uh, is ahead of me. Wow. Makes me think of, um, you know, the Desert Fathers used to say, we withdraw from the world for the world. You know, not just to get away from the world, but to come back in a different way and love it, you know, and serve it. Well, maybe in closing, Ken, just any any direction, any spiritual direction that you would give people who are entering into solitude and silence for the first time, whether that's, you know, maybe just focus on your, your 20 minute, 15 to 20 minutes idea or, or, or whatever, any just direction that you would give to people as they seriously consider this way of being with God. Yeah, I would say... Um... First of all, if you're new to this, you probably will find your mind distracted. Uh, don't be discouraged by that. Uh, Father Thomas Keating said, if you're distracted 10,000 times in your experience of silent meditative prayer, those are 10,000 opportunities to turn back to Jesus. So you're, yeah. you're uh, flexing an important spiritual attention muscle as you turn your attention back to Jesus. And I would also say, um, and this may be hard for some people to believe, but if you stay with it, if you stay with Jesus in the silence, it can become the sweetest and your favorite time of, of the day. I know that's true for you, John Mark. Yeah. Uh, given how right. easily distracted I am, when I first started this kind of meditation and I'd set the timer, I'd be looking at the timer, wondering why time had gone by so slowly <laughs> and wanting the time to end. Now, occasionally I will peak, I'm curious, but I want the time to go even slower. And I, 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 I um, am not eager for the time to end because I just want to sit there and enjoy the presence of Jesus to be filled with his spirit so that hopefully I have something or I have more wholeness to offer, offer the world. Hmm. Well, I'm guessing that you spent time in silent prayer this morning, and we are the recipients of that wholeness from Christ through you to us. So thank you so much for being a channel of grace. Thank you for your time, for your wisdom, for your articulation. Thank you for your writing. Again, if you've not read Ken's books, um, there are multiple. I can't recommend them enough. Ken, any uh, where people want to follow more of your work or listen to your preaching, where would you point people? Uh, yeah, um, they can go to our, our website, um, tenth.ca, www.tenth, spelled out T-E-N-T-H dot C-A dot Charlie Alpha. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you for your fidelity, not just to your church, but to Jesus. And thank you for your friendship. And I can't wait to see you again soon. Yeah, looking forward to being with you again, John Mark. And it's great to be with you today. Thank you. Thank you.